Thank you, Paul, for that ministry and music. As we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been considering the futility of life as it is lived under the sun. That is, taking God out of the picture. A person who doesn't believe or rely upon God, how empty and meaningless life really is. As Solomon has been looking at life with the unique wisdom that God had granted unto Solomon, he found that both wisdom and the pursuit of pleasure were all meaningless. We are not yet at the point where that resolution is going to come where he begins to look at things from a heavenly perspective. We see a, a, a slight change at the end of this chapter, and we'll see it for a brief moment in this message. But by and large, Solomon is still looking at life apart from God. And he comes to the conclusion that no matter how one lives one's life, whether Wisely or foolishly, eventually all have the same fate. They all have the same end, which is that everyone dies. No matter how wisely, no matter how foolishly you live your life, someday each of us is going to die. So, Solomon begins to take a look at life with death in view. And from a human perspective, what does this life mean, knowing that eventually we're going to die? Take God out of the picture, and Solomon says, life is pretty meaningless if you come to the realization That you're going to die. This morning I don't have a handout for you. This passage is very hard to uh, outline. At least it was for me. To try to outline this passage. There's a lot of circular reasoning going on. In which they almost seem like random thoughts. Puts a thought out there and comes back to it. And so this morning I just invite you to follow with me in your Bibles. Luke chapter. Excuse me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as we try to work through these verses, verse by verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon takes initial look at life. And he comes to the conclusion that there is a lot to be said for living life in a wise manner. Notice verses 12 and 13. Of chapter 2. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what he has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. He says, as I look at life and people who live their life wisely and those who live their life foolishly, certainly you can say 
that there's a great advantage to living one's life wisely as opposed to foolishly. And uh, he gives in this particular portion two reasons. Now, Ecclesiastes is very circular in its reasoning. And it brings this stuff up time and time again. And I have been trying to be disciplined and not looking too much forward in Ecclesiastes and bring some other elements in, but staying with the text that's before us. Having said that, uh, I am going to use one verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 10, which says, If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert much strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. As we think about wisdom, that pretty much encapsulates the advantage of wisdom in this life. Wisdom gives us a measure of success, a measure of accomplishment. That if you live your life life foolishly, at the end you don't have much to show for it. You really haven't gotten a lot done. That it is destructive as opposed to constructive. So there's a lot to be said for living wisely. In our text, in verse 14, the predominant advantage of living wisely is that the wise man contemplates the outcome of his actions. Notice verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The picture is of a fool who just stumbles along and encounters things at random. Where the wise person has eyes in his head. He looks forward. He looks down at the path that his feet are going to trod. This means a lot to me, this passage, because I got into this mess with my foot at Pinebrook. At Pinebrook, I was uh, ministering, and uh, I was in one of those responsibilities to speak at uh, a campfire service. And so we went up to the hill for the campfire service, and I got there, and it was very, very dark. And uh, as some of you know, I have very limited feeling in my feet as a result of my diabetes. And I can't really feel the ground under my feet too well. And it was dark, and I couldn't see, and I stepped into a very uneven uh, piece of ground and turned my foot separated my foot from my ankle and I was off and running because I couldn't see where I was placing my feet. There's a huge advantage in being able to see where you place your feet. There's a huge advantage of stepping back and looking at life and thinking about the consequences of one's actions. Solomon puts that forth and says, that's tremendous. That's of great value. Live your life wisely. Take into consideration what present decisions, how they're going to impact future outcomes. But having said that, he quickly moves to the idea, nevertheless, even though you can say there's great advantage to living your life wisely as opposed to foolishly, nevertheless, 
Bottom line, when it's all said and done, no matter what your choice is, no matter how you've thought about the future, whether you've exercised and had a good diet or whatever you've done, bottom line is your wisdom can't keep you from dying. And death comes to all. Verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them all. One fate befalls them all. Now Solomon takes that general truth and applies it personally. Verse 15. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. So Solomon takes a step further and moves from a general truth. And that is, no matter how wisely or foolishly you lived your life, everyone's going to die. And we'd all sit here and shake our head to that truth. We know that to be true. Uh, people die. And then, Paul, then Solomon steps back and says, verse 15, Now I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it's also going to befall me. Now he personalizes it. And Solomon, who's the wisest man that ever lived, and will be the wisest man that ever does live, he says, what's happened to the fool is going to happen to me. I'm going to die. What a huge step to move from we know that everyone's going to die to step back and say, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I don't know if that reality has ever gripped you. That you've been in a situation where all of a sudden you've gotten some news or you recognize your frailty and you've come to grips with, someday I'm going to die. Death takes on a different perspective when it moves from a general truth to a personal reality. Solomon said, I'm going to die. Because, you see, he was a wise man. And he took into account the fact that one day he would die. He had eyes in his head. He looked forward and said, someday I'm going to die. With that in mind, Solomon asks a very important question. Verse 15. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. He said, so why did I give myself in this pursuit of wisdom? He had studied hard. He had prepared hard. I had said last week that he was a man who reached his potential. Not only did God give him ability, but he acted upon that ability. He really gave himself to the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. And Solomon says, if I'm going to die, where has all that gotten me? Where has all that gotten me? Why does he say that? Verse 16. The wise man has no lasting legacy. What he has accomplished may very well count for nothing in the years to come. Verse 16, For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man 
As with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. The result is that Solomon became cold and indifferent to life in general and work in particular. Verse 17. So I hated life. So I hated life. That's a rather strong translation of this word. Uh, It could mean that. It's a very broad word. It can be everything from hatred to disillusionment, frustration, anger, bitterness, indifference. So I decided to refer to this as being cold and indifferent. Solomon got to the place and he said, so what? So what? He became frustrated and indifferent with life. Totally demotivated in the sense that he didn't want to put forth any effort anymore because where was it getting him? He was spinning his wheels. He was very unhappy. Reason Because he did not find any lasting value in his work. Verse 17. So I hated life. Why? For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Under the sun. Taking God out of the picture. It was grievous to me. It was full of pain and misery. He did not find any lasting value in his work or accomplishments. For he would have to give it all over to another. Verse 18. Thus I hated the fruit of my labor. He hated what his labor produced. Remember that he had had these gardens. And he had these palaces. And he had all these things that he had built. He had sought pleasure. And he'd gotten this huge empire. Larger than, than the empire had ever been before or after his time. He had amassed not only wealth. But power. He was able to influence nations. Kings were coming to him. And he said, I've grown to hate the fruit of my labor. Why? End of verse 18. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I must leave it to the man who will come after me. This is different from the idea that you can't take it with you. We've all heard that kind of language. When you die, you can't take it with you. Or, as one man has said, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. But Solomon is thinking much more long-term than that. He has eyes in his head. And he realizes that he amassed all of this stuff. And Solomon says, what's going to happen to it when I die? These palaces. These gardens. This empire. Everything that I've given myself to. What happens when I'm dead and gone? Because I'm going to have to leave it to another person. 
And when Solomon thought of leaving his life's work to another, then he thought that person could be responsible or irresponsible. Verse 19. For who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Who knows what the person is going to be like to whom I entrust everything that I have worked so hard for? One of the great frustrations in life is for people who have so dedicated themselves to achieve something only to find at the end of their life they've got to hand that over to somebody else. Whether that be a business and they've worked hard and they've formulated and got a good business but they're going to have to turn it over. Whatever your field, whatever your profession, whatever whatever you're doing, somebody is going to have to take over after you. A person who gives themselves to building up a, an organization. I think like a president of a seminary. And then that seminary closes. You see, what good has it been to have invested your life in something and it just goes up in smoke? Who knows, he says, whether that person will be a fool or not. Solomon has no control over that. He has no ability to govern what he has once he dies. Verse 19, Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. He's going to have control over everything that I have labored for. I think of people who have saved and who have set aside and have sacrificed and they finally get this nest egg and they die and they leave it to the next generation. Who knows if they're going to use that wisely or they're just going to go out and spend it. This person spent all their life accumulating this wealth, and now it's passed over, and the next person just wastes it in two years. What's the guarantee? Who knows what the outcome of that is going to be? Solomon's fears were well-founded. Solomon has a son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is going to take over after Solomon dies. And Rehoboam is a real winner. He blows it. He messes up the kingdom. And there's a long passage in 1 Kings chapter 11. I'm not going to to read it because it, it is a long passage. Let me just narrate it for you. Solomon dies. So his son Rehoboam now becomes king. And the people under Solomon had experienced incredible taxation. So as to be able to pay for this incredible lifestyle that Solomon was living. And so they came to Rehoboam and said, look, if you just lower the taxes, we'll be really faithful and good servants and we'll honor you as our king. But if you don't lower our taxes, we're going to rebel. 
So Rehoboam steps back a minute and says, what shall I do? And so he seeks some advice. He seeks some counsel. First, he goes to the people, the wise men that counseled his, his father, Solomon. And Solomon's counselors said to him, Rehoboam, just back off. Just acquiesce. And these people are going to be faithful to you forever. You're going to have your kingdom and all be great. Then Rehoboam goes to his friends, his chums, his pals. And he says, what do you think we ought to do? And his pals say, man, you ought to lay it to him. You ought to tell him if you think Solomon was tough, wait till you see what I'm going to do with you. Threaten him. And then they're going to be afraid of you. And they're going to do what you want. Well, Rehoboam, being unwise and being foolish, ignores the wise counsel of those that were of Solomon's ilk and followed his friends and his chums and threatened the people and the result was that they rebelled. And he lost the majority of the kingdom. When he started out, all he had was Judah. At the end, he ends up with two tribes out of twelve. Everything that Solomon had worked for, virtually everything, was lost overnight. That empire that had such incredible strength and power, not only did not have a world influence, but even in Israel, it was only a fraction of what it had been prior to that. Only a fraction of what it had been under David and even under Saul. His son proved to be a fool. And Solomon said, why am I working so hard to build up something that after me may come to be nothing? Not important at all. So let's fast forward from Old Testament days to present day. Right up to this very moment. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Bill Gates. Bill Gates. William Henry Gates III. Born October 28, 1955. I think many of you know him as an American business magnate and philanthropist. He... Uh, is the former chief and current chairman of Microsoft, the world's largest personal computer software company. He is consistently ranked, now listen to this, among the world's wealthiest people and was the wealthiest overall from 1995 to 2009. From 1995 to 2009, with the one-year exception of 2008, Bill Gates was the wealthiest man on the face of this earth. Sounds almost like biblical language, doesn't it? Bill Gates, the wealthiest man on the face of this earth. Unfortunately, now he's only ranked third. He's presently the third wealthiest man on the face of this earth. Bill Gates and his work. Gates stepped down as chief executive officer of Microsoft on uh, January 
in the year 2000. He remained chairman and created the position of chief software architect. In June 2006, Gates announced that he would be transitioning from full-time work at Microsoft to part-time work and full-time work at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So in 2006, Bill Gates basically handed the company over to someone else. And he said, I'll still come in from time to time. And I'll still be the executive chairman, but he wasn't going to have anything to do with the day-to-day operations of Microsoft. And he's been distancing himself ever since. He quit basically what he'd been doing all his life. He got to the point and he said, so what? I've got the biggest company on the face of this earth. So what? I don't want to run this company anymore. So what did he decide to do instead? Answer? To start a foundation. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That foundation is the largest private foundation in the world. Founded by Bill and Melinda Gates, it is driven by the interests and passions of the Gates family. Basically, there were three people that started the Gates Foundation. That, were, that was Bill Gates and his wife and uh, Warren Buffett. Those three people started the Gates Foundation. The largest private foundation in the world. The primary aims of the foundation are these, and I quote, globally to enhance health care and reduce extreme poverty, and in America to expand educational opportunities and access to information technology. That was its purpose. That was its goal, to help the world globally, everywhere, to be healthier and to be better educated. As of September 30th, 2012, so as of just a few months ago, that foundation had an endowment of $36.2 billion. With a B. $36.2 billion. This foundation to try to put an end to poverty and illness and bring about greater uh, education throughout the world. In 2006, a two-tiered entity was created at this foundation. One entity, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, distributes money to grantees. The other Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Asset Trust manages the endowment assets. So in 2006, bear with me. I'm, I've got a point at the end of all this. Okay. 
In 2006, Bill Gates said, this thing is too much for one person to run. $36.2 billion today. So he divided it up into two, two groups. There would be one person or one group, one entity, that would be responsible for the outlay of all these monies to determine where it was going to go. And Bill Gates said, that's what I want to do. So Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett basically have all the control over how this foundation is going to spend its money. And Bill Gates says, I don't have time to worry about creating money. So he created another entity that all they did was manage the money, invest it, oversee it, take care of the money. Okay, so he's going to decide how it's spent. This other group is going to make even more money. That happened in 2006. What is extremely interesting to me, having seen an uh, interview with him and Warren Buffett on television, that's how I first found out about all this, and then uh, doing the research, what is very unique about this foundation is that Bill Gates, before he set it up, investigated literally hundreds of nonprofit organizations. And as he looked at them, he found out that they had one major flaw. And that is that after the founder of this organization died, it was no longer acting in accordance with the desires of the founder. You know, in this area, just think of, you know, uh, Hershey Foods and Hershey Corporation and how different today that is from what Milton Hershey had intended when it started. And you can find that in organization after organization after organization after organization where the foundation is no longer performing in the way in which the founder started. So Bill Gates said that after he dies, every asset has to be liquidated within 50 years. It's not going to perpetuate. It's not going to go on. Every dime has to be spent within 50 years. Warren Buffett said of his stock that he still has in Hathaway. And of course, Warren Buffett, he and Bill Gates go back and forth as to who's the wealthiest. Warren Buffett, who signed on with Bill Gates, said, whatever I have after 10 years has to be totally liquidated. Gone. Every dime spent. Because Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, after looking at foundation after foundation after foundation, came to the conclusion that it's meaningless to hand this money on. Because you think you have control and you don't have control after you die. Better to spend it now and to spend it the way that they think it ought to be spent than letting this foundation go on into perpetuity. In other words, these two brilliant, 
successful individuals said, what's going to happen after we die? Who are we going to leave this to? And Warren Buffett and Bill Gates said, no guarantees. So, we're going to get rid of it all. Ecclesiastes 2.20 Therefore, Solomon says, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. His despair was the fruit, the accomplishment, the outcome. Why, Solomon says, am I bothering to accumulate any more when it's more than I need, it's more than he could really spend, and he said, all I'm going to do is leave this to somebody else, and who knows what in the world they're going to do with it. And he said, he lost any desire to accomplish more. Bill Gates lost any desire to run Microsoft. Why? What was it going to get him? How was it going to benefit him at all? He stepped back and said, for what? And so he walked away from the most powerful business on the face of this earth that he had started himself from scratch because he said, so what? I think I'm going to try to help the poor. I think I'm going to try to help the physically needy. I'm going to try to help the uneducated. And I'm certainly not going to entrust the next generation to use my resources in a way that I think they ought to be used. He lost hope. Solomon lost hope. Ecclesiastes 2.21 When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him, now he compounds it. Not only is he saying, I'm going to give this to future generations, but they won't even have worked for it. They really won't even have worked for it. Like so many times with inheritances. It's given to people who are irresponsible. Haven't even worked for it. As a result, his work is filled with painful thoughts. He has turbulent thoughts. And in verse 22, For what does a man get in all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. It became a hardship. It became a misery. And then these words, even at night, his mind does not rest. Even at night, the mind does not rest. Literally, the mind doesn't lie down. In Ecclesiastes 5.12, it says, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There are a lot of people who can't sleep at night 
Not because they don't know where their next meal is coming from, but because they don't know how to handle this wealth. They don't know how to handle this prosperity. What? And all they see is the danger out there. They see everything that can erode, nothing that can benefit. So what's his conclusion under the sun? Ecclesiastes 2.24 There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. There's nothing better. There's, this is as good as it gets. To simply eat and drink and tell yourself that your labor is good. Then he says this. This also I have seen that it's from the hand of God. Now God is introduced for the first time in this discussion. And he says, I realize that this comes from God. Verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Meaning two things. Number one, without God's benefit, you can't do anything. The fool doesn't realize that. The fool doesn't realize that he's dependent upon God. But the reality is that none of us can do anything apart from God's grace. And in the New Testament, we have the parable, remember, of the, of the rich fool who God provides for wonderfully and he has more than what his barns can hold. So what does he decide to do? He decides to tear down the barns and build bigger barns. And then he says, I will eat and be full. And it says, thou fool. For you do not know that tonight your soul is required of you. This rich man had all he needed. But he couldn't enjoy what he had. He said, when I build a new barn that's bigger and better than the barn I have, then I will have enough that I can enjoy life. Then I will have enough that I can enjoy life. And his life's going to be taken. Never is going to enjoy it. Because he thinks he has all the time in the world. He's a fool. Doesn't think of the coming life. Doesn't think of the consequences. How miserable life is when you are rich and you cannot enjoy it. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5, 16 and 17. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils in this wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation sickness, and an anger. It's the exact opposite of Ecclesiastes 2. Let him eat and drink and be merry. This person eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. When I read Ecclesiastes 5, verse 17, there's a poster child that comes to mind. That poster child is Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. An older name. How many people know who Howard Hughes was? Okay, good. 
Howard Hughes, again, was an extremely, extremely wealthy individual. Uh, best known for his building of aircrafts, eventually merged with American Airlines, also was a, a movie producer, director. He had loads of, of clout, fame, ability. And in 1947, he was in a near-fatal airplane crash as he was testing an airplane. Excuse me, 1946. In 1947, Howard Hughes told his aides that he wanted to screen some movies at a film studio near his home. Hughes stayed in the studio's darkened screening room for more than four months, never leaving it. He subsisted exclusively on chocolate bars, chicken, and milk. He relieved himself in an empty bottle and container. He was surrounded by dozens of Kleenex boxes, which he continuously stacked and rearranged. He wrote detailed memos to his aides on yellow legal pads, giving them explicit instructions not to look at him, only to respond to him when spoken to, but otherwise not to speak at him at all. He came out of that state after four months and then moved into a series of penthouses where he lived on the top floor of a penthouse. He would sit in a dark room, totally naked, with just tissues covering his genitals. Did not comb his hair, did not cut his nails, sat and watched TV from morning to night. It was the only light in the room was a television. He would sit and he would watch. He ate his meals alone. He ate erratically. And eventually, in the 1960s, after 20 years of this, he eventually died. He died. Leaving an incredible fortune that, to the best of my knowledge, is still in litigation to this day with his descendants over what portion of that is theirs. This man, one of the wealthiest men on the face of the earth, spending the last 20 years of his life in a darkened room, speaking to no one, allowing no one to speak to him in pain and misery and anguish. That's an extreme. That's an extreme. Far less of an extreme. I remember my aunt. My aunt lived as so many did, grew up and started working in the Depression era. My aunt had absolutely no money in those, those days. And one time when I went to see her, she told me a story. And she said, Cal, you said, she said, you know, I used to work and I worked above a, uh, a pharmacy. 
And in that pharmacy, they had, you know, a, a fountain uh, where they would sell ice cream, sodas, and sundaes, and, and you could get a, a sandwich there. And she said, you know, I often thought how nice it would be to go downstairs and buy an ice cream sundae. And she said, I could never afford it. She didn't have enough money to buy an ice cream sundae. Now she was retired. She was in a nursing home. And she said, Cal, I have all the money I need to buy as many ice cream sundaes as I want. But I'm a diabetic. I'm not allowed to have one. The frustration of life. A sovereign God. What a gift to be able to enjoy life. To eat and drink and be merry. God intends for us in this life to eat and drink and be merry. That actually is looking at life from a godly perspective. As I say, I'm keeping myself here. There's places in Ecclesiastes that talks about the importance of inheritance and leaving things for others. So we want to acknowledge that. But sometimes we really do need to step back and say, why am I hoarding all of this? Why am I keeping all this? Why am I denying myself certain pleasures? Because that's the fruit of your labor. That, that's, that's the best that there is, people, in this life. To eat, drink, and be, be merry. And if you have something to eat, and you have something to drink, be thankful. You have something to eat, and you have something to drink, and you can eat, and you can drink. Because that's about what life is all about. Be thankful that God has provided for you. Be thankful that you have this. Realize that you can't impact future generations. People have tried. People have tried. You know, they, they set up all kinds of things, safeguards, so that their legacy can continue only to have it undone in the courts and all these things. There's just no guarantee. Solomon built up an incredible empire that upon his death, immediately it was destroyed. For what? For what? There's a whole other dimension when we start looking at God and seeing the opportunity to love Him and serve Him and the benefit that comes from that. That's later in Ecclesiastes. Right now, it's under the sun. And under the sun, take God out of the picture. Life becomes pretty meaningless. As you look back, you say, so what? So what? Have eyes in your head. Look forward. See where your labor is ending you. See where it's taking you. I plead with you. 
We need to be on guard that we work so hard at our businesses. We work so hard at trying to get ahead that we don't have time for our children. We don't have time to read to them. We don't have time to sit and eat meals with them. Eventually, they're going to grow up. And eventually, we will have obtained our business. We will have obtained our wealth. And then what do we do? Oftentimes, look back on regret for times lost with our children. Times lost with our loved ones. We've grown distant from our spouses. And setting before us goals and dreams and thinking that this is what's going to make us happy only to be dashed when we find out it really doesn't make us happy and the things that we needed to be happy we had all along. We had our children. We had our spouse. We had our job. We had God's provision for us. Why weren't we content? Let's live our lives with eyes in our head. Seeing the consequences to life. We're all going to die. We can't take it with us. And there is no guarantee that everything we've worked for is in any sense going to be preserved. That will have any lasting benefit. So, use it now. To the fullest. For God's glory and God's honor. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Bless us, I pray. Help us to take joy in our work. To be thankful for your provision. That we can eat and we can drink. Thank you that we have the health to do so. Lord, preserve us from thinking that it's going to be these things that are going to make us happy. Otherwise, at the end of our lives, we may not be a whole lot different from Howard Hughes. Angered and bittered and paranoid and frustrated in our lives. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see now. Help us to look around us, see what's important. Invest ourselves in our children, our spouses, our family, ourselves. Lord, help us not to be so greedy. Not to be so fearful that we keep accumulating to the point where we fail to use it as we should. Lord, bless us and that which you have granted to us to further your kingdom and your purpose. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.